So uh, we're starting a, uh, started a new series uh, called He's That Guy. We're looking at the rule-breaking habits of Jesus, that there were things that he did in the first century that would be deemed inappropriate, offensive, and or odd, that Jesus often broke the rules, that he often offended people, and he especially offended people in high places, that many times he just plain ignored the rules and promoted behavior that would be nightmarishly wrong in the eyes of the establishment, it seemed. that Jesus would break the rules so that he could bless somebody. That was kind of uh, his reason often for breaking those rules. Now, this story that we're going to look at this morning, uh, it's going to cause us in the 21st century to shake our heads a bit. And I think it could even cause us to wonder, did I read that correctly? So I'm going to encourage you to hear the story. Let us get all the way through before we pass judgment on Jesus. Okay? Uh, it seems Jesus responded in a way that if at the least it could be surprising, but to some of us and to all of us, it could even seem intolerable. Okay? But you're, as we read the story, we're going to see that there is some things in the story that it to in our current culture and our current political conversations, it could we could see that there's this connection to these stories. This week at a rally, there was a chant that uh, those at the rally were chanting, "Send her back." Everyone saw that in the news, right? And it was directed towards a U.S. representative who uh, is elected official, and it's a racist and prejudiced chant made because of a person's skin color and because of their country of origin. We see pictures and we hear stories, and this is as I've been preparing this message that was scheduled weeks ago. We see pictures and hear stories of people who are being stored in cages until decisions can be made about their outcome. And we see this every day in the news, and we read about it every day in our news sources. There are other groups because of their sexual orientation, are assumed that they're far from God. The assumption is made just because of that choice or that, or that, that, that uh, makeup. We live in a world where a racist comment or a sexist comment made from a political figure is shocking. But then it's over ignored, overlooked, expected, and by some even encouraged. We live in a world of polarized viewpoints. We live in a world of angry words. We live in a world of harsh language. We live in a world of hate-filled speech. And so there's this story in the New Testament. It's from Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus is going to meet a woman... And it's up on the screen, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. I'm going to read this almost one verse at a time and kind of talk, talk through uh, some of this. And so it says this. Then Jesus left Galilee, and this is beginning with verse 21 in the story. Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And so we're going to pause there for a second. These are two non-Jewish cities. In the Old Testament, this was the area of the Canaanites. And so the people who grew up in this area would be considered Canaanites. They're from Canaan. These cities were frequently in the Old Testament referred to as symbols of paganism and godlessness. And According to the Old Testament prophets, this region would be considered a poster child for righteous judgment and the anger of God. 
And so Jesus and his disciples are going there. Verse 22, a Gentile woman who lived there came to him. Now, she's a Gentile woman. Now, Gentile is not, a, she's not only a Gentile, because Gentile is a general term for anyone who is non-Jewish, but she's also a Gentile who's a Canaanite descendant. And so to the Jewish people, the word Gentile could be synonymous with pagan and heathen, but now because she's also a descendant of this Old Testament people, she is the farthest from God imaginable. The disciples would have known her national history. They would have known that her national history was filled with rebellion and wickedness, and that she would be considered radically unclean by them, and she knew that they knew that. And so there's this tension immediately in the story. The climate today sadly connects to this first century climate between the Jews and the Canaanites, between the Pharisees and the common people, between what I would label, some people would call maybe insiders and outsiders. But I am sure the disciples did not want to be in this place and I'm sure the disciples did not want to be with this woman. Because everywhere they looked, and even this woman says to them, they are far from God. From the outside, the disciples would be thinking they are not only far from God, but this woman is far from God. And so verse 22 says, a Gentile woman who lived there came to him pleading have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. So this woman somehow had heard about Jesus and she had heard about his miracle working power and she somehow found, that, found out that he was in her town or in her area and so she sought him out because she has a daughter who is tormented by an evil spirit. She is in agony. She is in despair. This is heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching and she's hurting and she comes to Jesus for help but here's where it gets strange verse 23 but Jesus gave her no reply not even a word Matthew says then his disciples urged him to send her away tell her to go away they said she's bothering us with all of her begging. It seems as if Jesus is ignoring this woman in her greatest moment of need. And it seems as if the disciples are assuming that Jesus is on board with the culturally acceptable attitude toward a woman like this, a Canaanite Gentile woman. And they suggest that Jesus, Jesus should send her away. They don't care about her circumstance. They don't care about her child. She's bothering them, the disciples say. Send her away. Verse 24, then Jesus said to the woman, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. So Jesus now replies to her. I can't, and basically what he's saying is, I can't take the goodness that's reserved for the chosen people of God and give it to someone like you. 
the disciples must have loved that reply. Again, it seems that Jesus is in agreement with them. He seems to participate in this insider-outsider speech that some people are good and some people are not, and some people are welcomed and some people are not, and some people are equal and some people are less than equal in a sense. And then verse 25, it says, But she came and worshipped him, pleading again, Lord Help me. Now we miss this in the New Living Translation because uh, she was demonstrating an understanding or familiarity with Judaism. She used a very Jewish title for Jesus. She called Jesus Son of David, and she even calls him Lord. And the New Living Translation says she worshiped. She had this desperate need for Jesus to inter intercede, intervene on her behalf. She was doing her best to approach Jesus with respect, despite the upturned noses of the disciples despite knowing how they may feel about her and where she's from and who she's from. And I would suggest that while there are seven statements total in this story, that when Matthew was putting this story together, he did not list every detail to the story. Have you ever done that? I tell stories a lot. I tell stories for a living almost in a sense. And when I tell stories, I don't tell all the story. I tell the part of the story that fits to the, to the occasion. So I believe that's part of what's going on here with Matthew. I don't believe this story, if you were to read it straight through, only takes a minute to tell. I would say that this was longer than that. And so there's more going on. So what's going on with the dozen disciples who were there and Jesus and this woman and how long has this engagement of conversation taken place? I would suggest longer than 60 seconds. But then it's going to get worse it seems because then Jesus says something that's really offensive as we read it. So verse 26, after she's been pleading and begging, Jesus says, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Jesus, it seems, is calling this woman a dog. And there's some cultural context to that. Jews in Jesus' day sometimes referred to Gentiles as dogs. And it was a Greek word that would be wild dog or a hound. It's a first century dogs that were seen as scavengers and they were wild and they were filthy and they were dangerous. And so he's calling her wild and filthy and dangerous it would seem. And Jews would call Gentiles that because they felt that non-Jews were considered so unspiritual that even being in their presence could make a person ceremonially unclean. And so there was this idea that some people were good and some people weren't as good. And some people were acceptable and others were unacceptable. And some were okay and some were not okay. Some were insiders and some are outsiders. And taken out of context, especially when we read it in English, it's easy to be offended by this perceived insult that Jesus would call someone a dog or that he would call someone a wild, filthy, dangerous person, even that. Except that the exact word that Jesus used here 
isn't the word for that kind of a dog. It's similar but different. And that's when I started to wonder, is he doing something else here besides insulting someone for their nationality? Let's pray he is. Right? Yes? We would agree? Otherwise, let's pack up and go home. The exact word here that Jesus uses and then the woman uses in response is the word for a small dog or a pet dog. Now, my, uh, my son just got a puppy. He lives in an apartment in Philadelphia. He just got a puppy. Um, I have always made fun of small dogs. I have issue with small dogs. I have a 50-pound um, German short hair pointer. She's a hunting dog. I call that a manly dog. Anything less than 50 pounds is not. All right? I just offended some of you, and that's okay, because I now have to admit that this little dog showed up. It weighs four pounds, all right? We, have, we don't have a cat that weighs that, that, that amount, all right? But this little four-pound puppy, and it really is kind of cool, all right? Its name's Steve, uh, because a 20-something named him, uh, and also because it's uh, some kind of Australian dog and Steve Irwin. Uh, so that was the connection, I guess. So Steve, right? So Steve comes over. Steve is this big. And Steve comes over and finds out that my dog is there. And Steve thinks that my dog is its mom. And so now Steve is following my dog around, the big, tough hunting dog. And is scaring my dog. <laughs> so here's the difference. My dog is nothing like Steve. My dog, Chloe, is big, stinky hunting dog. She's got that oily skin. Steve is this little tiny pocket dog, right? So these are two words. They're even more distinct in Greek. The word for hound is wild and unkept and filthy. It would be used offensively against somebody. This other word is for a dog that would be in someone's home, small, a pet-like, completely different word. Now, that still sounds offensive, right? Why would you call someone a dog? But here, he's not using it as this racial slur or insult, but he's understanding that there's this cultural surroundings that he's a part of, that this woman would know about, that the disciples know about. It's there, and just like Jesus always does, he shines a spotlight onto this and says, look at this. This is, needs to be different, okay? And the woman seems to understand what's going on. And again, this is why I think this story is longer than 60 seconds Somehow she understands that something's going on here. Something in that Jesus says she perceives something because she decides to engage in conversation and use the same kind of language with Jesus. So Jesus responded and said, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. And she replied, that's true, Lord. But even dogs, uses the same word, are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Verse 28, dear woman, she said to her, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. 
I think that in this story and in this engagement with this woman, Jesus is showing the disciples the depth of faith that this woman possessed, and he wants to teach them an important lesson. That someone who can be perceived far from God can have a deep faith. And Jesus often used shocking and effective communication, and he often used wordplay to make his point and to know exactly what he was teaching. We need to go back. So I've told you all of that, and now I'm going to tell you what's in the other front of the story because context is king when we read the Bible. We need to know all that's going on in the story. See, many people think Jesus was traveling 30 miles. He went 30 miles from Galilee to get to Tyre and to Sidon. Some people think he traveled that way to avoid confrontation because he had just had an interchange and ex- or exchange with the, uh, with the Pharisees. And some people think that he went 30 miles away to avoid confrontation. Not my Jesus. I can't imagine that he would run from confrontation. He doesn't seem to do it anywhere else. So I don't follow that he was getting away from the Pharisees for a breather to avoid confrontation. Other people think he traveled there with his disciples to get some peace and quiet. And he did that often. And so it's more than likely that that's possible. But what if there was an additional reason? What if going to Tyre and Sidon, these ancient Canaanite cities, had another purpose. And so we have to go all the way back to the beginning of this chapter. And you can read all of it on your own, Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read just the first two verses and then a few others. But in the first two verses, it says this. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. And they asked him a question. Verse 2. Why do disciples, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition for they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. So the, the Pharisees are asking a question. They want to know, how come your disciples don't do the things that we do? How come they don't wash their hands all in, 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 in the manner that they needed to wash their hands before they eat? They're ceremonially unclean. This is a story in chapter 15. Matthew is introducing us to a story about outsiders and insiders. What makes someone an insider and what makes someone an outsider? It's a discussion and teaching. If you read all of chapter 15, it's a discussion and teaching about purity and who would be considered pure and what makes you pure. See, because according to Jewish tradition, the disciples were unclean, but Jesus said they're not. And when he explains this, and when he contradicts the Pharisees in the next few verses, you'll see that the Pharisees get angry with him. Then in verse 10, it's up on the screen, then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. This is after his engagement with the Pharisees. And he said, listen and try to understand. What he's about to teach them and what he's trying to teach them would require cultural change. It would require them to change a centuries-old tradition. Verse 11, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. 
Jesus tells them purity is not impacted by what is consumed. Purity is not about what goes inside your body. It's about what comes out of your mouth. It's measured by what comes out of you, not by what goes into you. It's not what goes in, but what comes out. So he tells them that, and then the, a few verses later, the disciples... Now, So it started out the Pharisees with the crowd and the disciples. Then in verse 11, we see it's the crowd and the disciples and Jesus. And then in verse 15, it's just the disciples and Jesus. And the conversation continues. And the disciples ask, Peter is the one who says to Jesus, explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Because Jesus is contradicting, uh, contra- is contradicting this ancient tradition. This, and this is going to require a life-altering change. Now Jesus is nearing the end of his time with his disciples. Soon he will be, uh, they will be leading the people towards the kingdom of God by themselves after Jesus' death and resurrection. And they need to understand this. And yet they won't fully get it until Years are months and years after Jesus' death and resurrection. As a matter of fact, Peter has to have this incredible engagement with an angel and dream for him to finally get this. But he, Jesus desperately wants them to understand this. this. Is verse 16. Don't you understand yet? You see, just, Jesus is just pleading. Don't you, don't you understand? This is just Jesus and the disciples now. Anything you eat passes through the stomach... And then goes into the sewer. There you go. That's your religion. That's the memory verse for this week. All right? He's like, I'm making it as simple for you to understand as possible. When you eat something, it goes through your body into the sewer. But the words you speak... They come from the heart. And that is what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. So he explains it with this really simple biology lesson, right? He says food passes from the stomach to the sewer. And so what is eaten doesn't impact your inside. Food doesn't impact your heart. I can't wait to tell my doctor. He's not making a statement about cholesterol here. He's making a statement about character and spiritual condition. That evil comes from the heart, not from the stomach. It doesn't come from religious activity like washing hands before eating. Evil comes from the inside, not the outside. And in our world, much like the first century world, we tend to measure by outside standards. We measure economically. We measure someone by their home, by their car, by their clothing, by their job by their success. We measure demographically by where they live, by their skin color, by their nationality, by the language that they speak. We measure outside. And then Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon. 
And I don't believe he went there for fresh air. But he went to make a comment about the real nature of purity in a real life kind of way. Remember he said, You've, don't, you, don't you understand yet? Don't you understand yet? It's possible Jesus used this encounter with this woman in the very next verses to drive home his point. That this woman who from the outside measurements in every way measured by the Pharisees and by Jewish customs, this woman is unclean. I would suggest that chapter 15 is all a teaching about purity. That this is an inside-outside story. That this is an inside-out story. It's why I shared it with you backwards so that you would see it from the inside out. It's a lesson so needed in today's world. That the outside of a person is taking control of many of our conversations and our beliefs. Skin color and political affiliation and sexual orientation. That hatred and anger associated with someone who is different than me. And someone who believes differently than me. But the inside, the heart, is a reflection of our life. That this woman, who outwardly could not possess any purity, according to Jewish tradition, was motivated by love for her daughter. How could we not be inspired by that? So motivated by love that she was begging and pleading with people who were looking down on her. Not Jesus, but the disciples. She wasn't thinking about how foolish she looked in that moment. She wasn't concerned about the judgmental look she was getting from the disciples. She was thinking about one thing only, her desperate need for Jesus. And from inside her heart flowed love, and faith and worship towards Jesus. Evil and goodness comes from the inside, not the outside. So yesterday on Facebook, one of you had on your Facebook page this question. I thought it was actually quite uh, profound. So much so that I was done and I was finished the message and I had just finished the slides, I just texted them out, which was two days late, but I just texted them out saying that they were finished, and I was sitting in my uh, recliner, and as I was printing this on my printer, which takes a while to print, I was on Facebook, and someone put, is there a standard that we can all agree on that we must all live by? And it was kind of in response to what's currently happening in our world. Basically, I think what was being asked is, how do we survive this angry, turbulent time in history? And so I thought, yeah, I think there are a few. As people of faith, there's probably a few different things you could make as your mantra in how to live in this world. So first one I thought was, and I don't respond on Facebook ever, so if I respond, it's usually something sarcastic, hopefully funny, uh, never serious. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, um, but I thought, yeah, love God, love people. That would work. If we could be a culture that just loved God and loved people, imagine how that would have an impact on our world. And then I thought of my um, uh, favorite, favorite Bible verse in the Old Testament. It's from Micah, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. 
And Micah says, basically, he's saying there's three things we need to do. And I'm like, I love when, it, when, it's, when it's simple like that, right? So love God, love people is simple. And this one is simple as well. Do what is right. Okay? Love mercy. And walk humbly with God. There you go. Okay. Those are good. Love God, love people, do what is right. Love mercy, walk humbly with God. And then I remembered we're Methodists. And John Wesley, and I believe John Wesley was stealing from Micah 6.8. But John Wesley had three as well. He said, we can live life like this. We can do no harm. Do good. Stay in love with God. Imagine a world where we had that as our way to live, that we would do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. I think we have to discover what it is that we're going to do. Uh, it's got to stop being measuring from the outside. It needs to be what's on the inside. How are we living that kind of life? I believe that it happens in a place like this. We're an outpost of faith, which is the way we were described a year ago, and I think it fits really well. An outpost of faith that is interested in parking cars at a national night out event. Only because the police department asked us if we would help. And in some way, we would make an impact on people's lives. And then that can grow, and ripples can go out throughout the world, throughout our towns into the world. I believe that's possible. I believe that's the reason for Matthew chapter 15, is to let us know that that is possible. That we can communicate that it's not about how we look differently on the outside, but it's about how we choose to live on the inside. Will you stand with me for closing prayer? So God, I thank you for the love that you have poured out on our lives, God that you have offered us forgiveness, and that, God, we could go around and tell stories of how you have changed our life. But, God, I pray that together as this community of faith, we would be looking for ways that we could communicate that to the world around us. God, I believe it's in living differently. I believe it's in living in response to our angry world. And that response would be to love God and love people. That response would be to do what is right and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. That God, that's the response. That's the, the way that we change our world. And God, I pray that you would inspire us and challenge us and move us towards that kind of life. As you go, I pray that you would go knowing that there's a God that loves you with his whole heart.
that He loves you enough that He'd rather die than live without you, that He chose to leave His throne in heaven so that He could dwell in our hearts and our lives forever, that that same God that loves you loves every person you will see and meet throughout your day and week, and they're desperate to know of that kind of love. Amen. Have a great day. Yes, I will rise.